Hello and welcome to this episode of Climate Conversations, part of our Climate 201 series from Physical Attraction. This episode I'll be talking to Paul Johnston, who has been involved in climate change efforts throughout the tech sector, particularly in his field of cloud computing. We'll be talking about the community energy projects that he's been involved with, how the technology sector can help deal with climate change, and how it's currently struggling to do so, and how you can help by getting involved in your own organisations. Without further ado then, the interview. Okay, first of all, Paul, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. That's all right. Looking forward to it. So I wanted to start with a little bit of background. Um, Could you tell the listeners about your career so far, your career in tech and with uh, Amazon Web Services and so on, and and also how you first got interested in climate change in that context? Uh, So my career is a little bit varied. So I come from um, a tech background. So uh, I work as a consultant and interim CTO primarily uh, with tech startups, but I've also worked for Amazon Web Services, AWS, um, and uh, do an awful lot of various different consulting around tech to primarily earn money. But I also am a uh, director of a community energy company, have been for over five years now in my hometown of Milton Keynes. So I have a um, little bit of uh, understanding of how things like energy networks work and electricity networks. Uh, involved in multiple different projects, mainly solar panels on uh, large-scale routes, uh, that kind of thing. But in terms of how I got interested in climate change, uh, originally, um, probably going all the way back to university in the 90s, where uh, I read things like um, uh, Gaia Hypothesis, James Lovelock, um, that kind of thing, all the way back when, Um and got a, a kind of good understanding. You know, I studied, uh, my degree was natural sciences, so physics was a part of all of that. So I, I kind of have a bit of a an understanding from all the way back when. Uh, but it's been a kind of strand of conversation rather than a strand of work um, throughout my uh, entire life, um, which is why I got involved in doing community energy. And up until recently, where I've been working and doing research uh, for uh, Leading Edge Forum in the last year or so, um, researching the impact of climate change on globalised businesses. I mean, I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit more about the community energy projects, actually, because mm-hmm. um, just sort of how did it get started and what what are the challenges been that you found in trying to get something like this off the ground? Because... It's been it's been actually really quite tough. Um, the, the community energy side of things, there, there have been opportunities uh, up until around 2015, 2016 to build a, um, a portfolio of things like solar panels, things like uh, heat networks, things like... Um, uh, certainly at large scales, if you can get the uh, scale. So if you can find a solar farm, so if you can get a field, basically, if you can find a large a set of large roofs, if you can find uh, the ability to put the, the large number of solar panels primarily uh, into a space and connect it to the grid, um, up until about 2016, there were some amazing opportunities to do this because of government subsidies and uh, in the UK and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, we actually had the opportunity to put in a number of these things, but the local council where we lived uh, didn't move very fast. They didn't want to work with us particularly. Uh, the schools that we talked to with big roofs, they kind of dithered until the um, subsidies got taken away. 
and so we ended up we ended up in a scenario where we had uh, an, a, a few small organizations that worked with us so instead of having around about um, a megawatt we ended up with about 330 kilowatts so we actually ended up with a third the size because of the complexities of things like the legalities around you know leasing roofs and you know having to deal with landlords and actually the, the when you look at things like the electricity networks um, actually the, the easiest bit is putting solar panels on roofs that's the straightforward bit the complex bit is all of the legality uh, all of the understanding you know how to um, make the right agreements power purchase agreements all of that the, the legal side is actually the more complex bit writing the business plan is the easy bit it's actually relatively straightforward it's, it's all the legal side of it and it's all the um, permission side of it and that that's actually what takes up the time and you know hearing this doesn't shock me but it's quite interesting because you know i, I come at things from a, a climate science but also interested in climate policy and so on and one of the things that you often see in these models where people are trying to imagine a future energy system is saying okay look at renewables the advantage you have with renewables is they can be modular you know a solar panel could be uh, on on someone's roof or on a few small roofs um you don't have to have these huge great uh, one or two gigawatt behemoth plants uh, to generate electricity in a centralized way. And so everyone's dreaming of this decentralized network and you're going to use, uh, you know, uh, machine learning or whatever it might be, uh, different technologies and ways of keeping uh, the supply and demand balanced. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff written about the advantages of having a decentralized uh, power network that's enabled by renewables. Um, and you look at all this stuff and you think, yeah, it would be great if we had a more um, decentralized power network where it makes sense and you know if it's community run and community led then it can be more tailored to the advantages of people from that community and make money for the community as well um all of this stuff sounds wonderful in principle but then i always wonder well what's actually the barriers in the way of making this stuff happen in practice and i imagine that it is a lot of that sort of bureaucracy and so on that that you've talked about encountering um and particularly the in terms of the availability of subsidies for renewable energy a lot of the big subsidies are these, uh, you know, these contract for difference projects, which are more suitable, I suppose, for a big company or a big energy provider to bid for, and would just not be available to anyone who's trying to do something like you were trying to do that. I mean, do, do, do you think that uh, having had this experience with decentralized power, it's something more people should try? Or do you think it's something that we need a lot more uh, regulations being shifted out of the way of to enable people to do it? So I, th I think it is something that more people should try. I think it is something that more people should um, look into and get involved with, but I would uh, I would caution against doing something at too small a scale. Basically, there is a sweet spot around the oh, 50 kilowatts and up where uh, it starts to make sense to put the time and energy into it. And there is another sweet spot around 250 kilowatts where it actually starts to be, uh, you know, make it uh, affordable to actually uh, be able to pay for the time. So actually, I haven't ever been paid for the amount of time that I've worked in the community. And it's, it's, it's entirely voluntary at the moment. And we only have one paid member of uh, the board. And, and part of that is because we're trying to build up the amount of solar panels we have and the amount of... Uh, revenue we're generating so that at some point in the future we can start to pay more people and build the company up and do 
do something with the business so that we can then pay um, back into the uh, the local community in some form of uh, community benefit. So that could be supporting, uh, you know, improvements in um, uh, house house renovation so that they could be more uh, insulated, for example, where people are too poor to do it themselves. And that was the intent of the business in the first place. It wasn't in, it wasn't about us making lots of money. It was about us giving back to the community. Um, and I think when you talk about, you know, the things like the contracts for difference, they are basically for big energy companies coming in and doing big, big projects. And so you're talking capital markets, you're talking, you know, huge, huge numbers. That's not community. That's not distributed grid. That's replacing that's replacing your gas power, your coal power, your, uh, you know, your oil fired power stations is replacing all of that over time and that's and that's a necessary thing that we need to do as part of the race towards uh, net zero in 2050 and that's absolutely right but it's the other part that we need to consider is we need to consider this decentralization problem we need to look at uh, small generation we need to look at multiple i think we need to look at offshore and onshore winds you know we need to be looking at multiple different things and we need to be looking at uh, one of the things that a lot of people aren't really aware of, which is balancing, grid balancing, um, which most people think of as kind of, oh, it's fine. You know, we've got all these big power production things over, you know, all of these power stations. Well, what happens when, you know, there is big demand in one area or even just moderate demand in one area, then, it, you know, we need to still get electricity there. If we can make lots and lots of small generation in an area, then actually that just reduces the pressure on the rest of the grid. So it does make sense. But we haven't got the legislation and the regulation and all of those things to actually allow community energy organisations and companies to spring up to do that. The ones that are successful at the moment, all were set up in, you know, either the late um 2000s or early 2010s and that's because the subsidies existed so there are companies out there in bristol oxford and various other places which you can just go and look up um who have significant funds because they've got subsidies they've got basically they built scale when the subsidies existed they have a huge amount of money coming through they've got people working for them and they can just keep churning out more work and more solar farms and all of these kinds of things and there's the rest of us sitting there going well we don't have those subsidies we don't have that scale and so we can't do those things so there are some some places like bristol who who have really good setups and there are others who aren't who just aren't seeing this so the value of the uh, the local council support, the value of central government and subsidies, all of those kinds of things to bring forward the renewable generation locally and then the distributed grid, I think is it's absolutely vital. And I think, you know, it's interesting because, as you say, we're, we've in the UK, uh, we're speaking here, we have an international audience, but I talk a lot about the UK because it's the jurisdiction I'm most mm-hmm. familiar with. We have this big UK net zero target by 2050. And I feel like the government's perspective at the moment is, okay, we need to throw lots of stuff at this. We need to get all of this offshore wind going. We need to have uh, large scale projects that are replacing um, existing fossil fuel infrastructure. And of course, yes, we do need that stuff. Um, But at the same time, when you look at the 
the modeling that people do and the the proposals they have for a more flexible, more distributed grid, you think there's no way that's actually going to manifest itself with this kind of top-down approach as your only uh, weapon for decarbonization. You're going to need to empower people to do bottom-up things like the things that you've been talking about so that we can have this flexibility, so that we can have this storage, so that we can have a grid where the the model is less uh, to do with these massive centralized power uh, plants and power stations that, that provide um, electricity to everyone. But instead, you've got a lot more flexibility for it to include different uh, nodes. I mean, people talk about vehicle to grid technology as an example for that. Um, the electric vehicles uh, batteries being something that could feed back into the grid. But th- I feel like it's very easy to draw a model of doing this. And figuring out what regulatory and technical and practical barriers are in the way of doing this is it's a learning by doing procedure where you actually have to try and do it and run into the problems so that you know what they are and so that you can solve them along the way. And so it would be good to see um, more projects like the one that you're doing, uh, getting support and, and sort of running into these barriers, figuring out what they are and getting them out of the way. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the comments I would make around all of that is that the the biggest criticism of the subsidies that um, were created in the past is that they essentially created uh, too much of the wrong kind of energy in the wrong place. It just needs a more holistic approach to understanding where demand exists, how to consider the possibilities of you know future generation demand as well how to think about balancing so it's it's got to be more than just you know subsidies for solar farms subsidies for offshore onshore wind subsidies for this it's got to be more than just here have some money because mm-hmm. that's not going to be a good thing it's got to be more about how do we want the grid to be let's subsidize that and that can be something that the community uh, and community energy companies could and should be involved but but in my dream world this would be uh, you'd have some sort of bureaucracy which could say to you, okay, well, what are the properties of the grid in your area? Where are some good places where you could get some generation going on a smaller scale? And then look to those businesses who have their net zero pledges and their low carbon pledges and so on and say, okay, well, well, you've got a premises here. Would you be interested in funding this and getting some of your electricity from this way and all this sort of thing? And essentially having ways of linking up that information to people who might be interested in getting involved now in light of net zero. So, I mean, when we talk about tech and business then, whether it's the technology industry or indeed in some cases business in general, I think this is improving now, but it was quite often the case that companies either don't view climate change as their responsibility or don't necessarily have a particularly deep knowledge about how their activities impact on it. And it's not necessarily so much denial as thinking that someone else is going to come along and solve the problem. I mean, you describe this as the tech industry in particular being unaware and disempowered uh, yet in terms of cloud computing and some of the electricity use there and the energy use there and the resulting CO2 emissions, um, that can be similar to the aviation industry and and growing as quickly. I mean, do you think that this assessment of the, the tech industry as being unaware and disempowered is, is fair? And if so, would you like to describe how how that is the case and why you think it's the case? I think it certainly was the case. I think the tech industry is becoming more aware the biggest issue we have in and around uh, so let's talk about cloud computing to start with because that's something i know i used to work at aws so amazon web services or aws is a cloud computing company um so it allows you to uh, essentially buy compute or computing services on in the cloud by the hour or by the minute or by the hundreds of milliseconds even so you can essentially 
you know, go and do your compute without having to buy lots of servers in a data center. That's essentially what the cloud is. Um, and I used to work as part of uh, AWS Lambda in the product team there. Um, and essentially, I also was, I also tried to find out and support and try to work uh, to make their, to try to work out whether I could get AWS to be more green. And since I left, I have done a lot more digging into cloud and cloud computing as a whole. And uh, looked at AWS, looked at Google, which is a big cloud provider as well, looked at uh, Microsoft, a big cloud provider as well, and looked at most of the cloud cloud industry. I mean, AWS is uh, roughly 30, just over 30% of the entire uh, data center industry. Huge chunk of what you see on the internet is run on AWS. Um, so when you talk about, you know, emissions being uh, around, you know, in the same ballpark as aviation from cloud computing, you know, the CO2 emissions from aviation is pretty obvious, you know, you're spewing out stuff from the back of an engine. You don't really think about it when you're, you know, looking at the internet and there's stuff running on a server somewhere and that server is running on electricity and that electricity comes from some kind of power station, whether that be hydroelectric or renewables or coal you know that somewhere somehow is producing co2 emissions and it is it is estimated to be around in the same ballpark uh, as aviation so that's where most people don't see the connection between those two and cloud computing is definitely growing uh, the electricity usage is thought to be growing it's uh people think some people say it's flatlining some people say it's growing massively i tend to take a middle ground it's definitely growing uh, in some form but we don't know exactly how lots of reasons behind that but i do think it's a fair assessment that most people in tech and in the tech industry are disempowered simply because most people don't have the choice to be able to say i don't think we should build this on the basis of climate or climate change or CO2 emissions. Most people simply are told to go and build something and they don't have the capacity to be able to push back on that basis because most people's apps don't produce that much CO2 on the single basis. You know, it's like my, my app is going to be tiny. It's not going to actually produce that much in this, that, that many emissions in total. So I think that's when we talk about being disempowered. Most people aren't really doing it's like recycling you know most people's recycling doesn't make any difference whatsoever but if we all do it then it makes a big difference so it's that kind of problem most people are disempowered and don't even think about it and as an energy efficiency problem i think it's also very interesting to consider okay if you're obviously if you're designing a, a, an application with a certain amount of uh, compute associated with it um, mm -hmm. that you need to churn through um you will be thinking about reduce minimizing that to minimize the cost if the computers of rare is a fairly cheap part of the cost of running your overall scheme, then it might not weigh into you to do that economizing. But in terms of the CO2 emissions that result from it, you know, if you can make something that runs on half as many servers, um, mm -hmm. you'll have, you know, the, the, the efficiency from not having bloated code or inefficient code or code that doesn't need to be running all the time and all this sort of thing. The, the efficiency from that 
um, kind of stacks up and then ultimately somewhere results in fewer fossil fuels being burned and less demand for electricity, which makes the transition to renewables easier. There is no way of finding out most of the time how how many how much emissions your app is creating from most of the cloud providers unless you have uh, gone with google or with uh, microsoft who say that they offset or use um or, or use renewables or you've got a green data center that you're you know you're hosting everything in it's actually very difficult to get an emissions calculation based upon your usage so the best mm -hmm. proxy you have for the amount of electricity usage you have is actually the cost so it's, it's the easiest proxy is what is my what is my data bill? what's my cloud bill mm -hmm. the lower your cloud bill the likely it is the lower the electricity so if you can reduce that to as as close to zero as possible then actually you're probably doing the best job you can to make your uh, impact on the environment from your usage of cloud or data centers as small as possible and uh, this lack of transparency front i think is really important as well you know i there's a proceed there's something coming out of the rocky mountain institute called what time which is essentially the aim of that is just to give businesses transparency on where they're using energy because it's not something that you necessarily know. Um, uh, the one thing that he has always pointed out, uh, Amory Lovins of, of the Rocky Mountain Institute, is that for many businesses, their energy bills just come out of the accountancy alongside the rent, you know, and it's not something that people think to uh, economize on. And I suppose for many computing projects, it's similar in that, as you say, they can't get access to this information about the environmental impact of the cloud computing. Um, and basically the best metric you have is how much you're using in terms of the cost. But you don't necessarily... Uh, have any way of trying to change what you're doing to minimize the climate impact if you wanted to. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, the, the transparency problem is, I think, probably the biggest barrier to anybody making any kind of change. You know, if you if you just don't know, you, you aren't going to make any real, uh, you aren't going to really make any changes to anything you do. If you, if you don't know that a change is going to make any difference, why would you make it? Unless you literally know that what you do is, a good thing why would you do it so i think that and, until you have that transparency you 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 will really struggle uh, and most organizations will really struggle even when you look at across the board when you look at sustainability in any organization the majority of organizations don't actually know their own uh impact uh, even though they say they do some kind of impact assessment and unless you're a really large organization with a team that can do it most organizations don't actually have that kind of skill set to be able to do it. And most of them still estimate. And even when they estimate, they are still taking, it's more of a guesstimate when you actually look at it. And so, uh, and often they don't know the data that they don't know, which it sounds like mm -hmm. a strange thing to say, but it's, it, it means, getting into Rumsfeld territory here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it effectively yes, because effectively what it means is there are there are black holes of data that you sit there and you go, well, I know that this supply chain over here or this this thing over here in our organisation, these things are essentially unknown. So we are just going to assume that they are x in our emissions calculations or our biodiversity calculations and impacts uh, because we we have no way of knowing so we're going to we're going to take the average for our kind of organization is going to be this and we know we're this size so that's going to be our number 
we have no standards across these organizations and this and this happens across multiple different things and, and it's and this isn't a criticism and, and i'm not saying this is a criticism this is this is this is just the fact that we haven't put enough emphasis on this over many many years there are lots and lots of people who do these things and do them really well it's just that not every organization has put enough emphasis on this over time to be able to have the right amount of support uh, to be able to do this well. I found this example of Microsoft who have made this pledge to go either carbon neutral or even maybe carbon negative and, and draw down emissions uh, over time when it comes to their operations and the direct impact of those. So they're considering, OK, all of the buildings that are run by Microsoft, all of the computers and servers that we directly run. But then at the same time, they're also providing services to companies that are oil and gas companies, which are trying to maximize the amount of fossil fuels that they can extract. And you just think, well, hang on a minute. How can you say that you have a positive impact as a company if you know all, all that you've done is effectively say, well, the number of emissions that can be directly attributed to me uh, are, are zero, but my activities and my actions are still some supporting someone else. You know, it's like, I don't know, the Shell executive who plants a couple of trees in his garden and says, okay, well, I've cancelled out my emissions from driving to work. Time to, you know, go back to being CEO of Shell or whatever and, and think that they've sort of done enough to, to uh, reduce their impact to zero. I mean, do you think part of this is down to something you also talk about, which is the lack of domain knowledge that people have um, in these companies when, when they're thinking about uh, climate change and the impact they have on it? Yeah, I, there, there is definitely a lack of um, a lack of domain knowledge, uh, certainly at the C-suite level. Um, I think there is also a lack of understanding that it is a systemic uh, a systemic problem and a systems thinking problem. Um, so you can't just say, "Oh, we need to sort out emissions." Uh, or we just need to sort out, you know, we just need to measure X and fix that and we will be fine. Um, I think going to the Microsoft conversation very much, I think I think there is a real problem with saying oh, we're going to, uh, you know, as a company, we're going to go carbon negative. First of all, we don't have the technology to do it. Secondly, uh, it's a very bold claim and aim. And, and I kind of support it because they're going to put some money into the development of technologies and that's absolutely fine. But then to blatantly still work with oil and gas companies, they have to be much more clear on what they're doing, why they're working with them, how they are going to manage going forwards. Because it's like, you, I, I get that you can't just turn off the the relationship that you have already built i you know the commercial relationship you you have you've already signed an agreement you can't just pull out of that and go we're not doing this anymore i understand that but i also am looking at it and going but you can't then as an organization say we are going to help you to do more damage if you as a, if you as an organization are saying we are going to reduce our impact it's then beholden on you to say and we're going to look at the impacts of the rest of our activities as well. So it, ju it just has to be that case. Now, uh, I do have some conversations with some of these kinds of people and the sustainability teams are aware of these conversations. They know that they have these 
problems within their organizations that they have to solve and they are doing them at a time i i think it is incredibly difficult to change an organization overnight that's one part of it but also i think they are waiting for a steer from government and they are waiting for a steer from elsewhere because effectively if you turn around to a microsoft and say um if if microsoft turns around and says we're not going to do it those companies will just go and get the technology from somewhere else so there is there is a conversation to be had about how do we influence our our customers so that they are doing a better thing that's that's a right thing so that it's an incredibly complex conversation but also i would say there are it's a very simple conversation at the same time and i and part of this is i think employees need to step up so i, I would suggest that employees of your amazons your googles your microsofts need to step up they are big companies with employee bases that have power to be able to change those those companies i think they need to step up and do do more and, and that i think is a, a difficult thing for them to do because organizing in the us specifically has been shown to be a a difficult thing to to do and to say that they don't want this and i think that i think is important but uh, this is a thorny subject but i think it is an important an important one to bring up um but the other the other the other issue that comes in i think is that certainly within the tech sector the idea that you can just fix this at some point in the future with a bit more technology is problematic at best so you end up with you know we will have this technology because we are the tech industry is effectively the idea that comes through i just think is wrong you know you 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 can't guarantee that we are going to have some kind of way of you know doing carbon sequestration in some way shape or form that will allow microsoft to go carbon negative at some point in the future we just don't know that that will happen so you you end up with great ideas great uh you know pronouncement but you've got to give us data every six months every year that's showing us your progress and you need to tell us what happens if you don't hit these targets and if you're not going to hit these targets by, you know, within five years out, what are you going to do then? You know, how how are we going to know that you're a good citizen of the planet as a company? Do you know what I mean? How how are we going to know? Yeah, a whole bunch of questions in there. Well, I think there's there's a, there's a few related things here, um, which get to the to the heart of what I really wanted to talk about with you on this show, which is this year we've seen. A lot of promising progress in terms of announcements. Okay, yes. Yeah, so we've seen, for example, Amazon has their big new investment fund. They've made a, a climate pledge to be net zero carbon by 2040. Uh, Google has said that they want to offset all of their historical emissions as well. Uh, Microsoft has made this carbon negative pledge that we've been discussing, and we're seeing things from governments as well. You know, the, the British government last year net zero by 2050. China was a recent big. Uh, scoop in terms of the pledges, uh, net zero by 2060. And you've already talked about the importance of uh, interim targets uh, as, as part of that. I also think the other thing that you've mentioned is this importance of standardization and standards for actually measuring what your impact is, and even having a consistent set of terminology about what these companies are doing and aiming to do. It seems like this is very technical, 
But again, we're getting to the point where if you can't measure something or if you have different ways of measuring something, uh, you're not going to be able to be consistent about what your impact is. And from from my sort of concern would be that people would come up with some offsetting scheme, whether it's like negative emissions or investing in renewable power somewhere else. And there, there are many, many different ways of doing the accountancy, which makes it appear as if you're greener than you actually are. And your system actually becomes green greenwashing. Um, you know, we see this all the time with afforestation projects. We see it where people are counting avoided emissions relative to some baseline where you know, only coal is burned and you can question whether that sort of thing would happen in the first place. Um, so so when it comes to these pledges, which we've seen, which are great, and I think owe a lot to uh, organising within the companies in many cases. I mean, one of, the, one of the key barriers to these things actually being fulfilled and having the environmental impact that we want them to is this question of standardisation and is this question of interim targets. I mean, when you when you you know when you think about this and talk to these companies, what would you like to see from them, um, and how would you tell whether these pledges are um, serious, going to result in serious action, or whether they could just be greenwashing? I genuinely think that the companies that I've spoken to really, really want to do what they say they're going to do. I don't. I don't come across people who are trying to just say the right things and um and try and get away with it so i i genuinely think that pretty much every single announcement is well intentioned (laughs) that isn't the same thing as saying i think they're going to do it and it isn't the same thing as saying i think everybody in the company is pulling in the same direction So, so what what I'm trying to get at is, I th- I think that companies and and Amazon is probably the one that I that I know best, and it's the one that I think uh, has the the worst record in terms of saying something and then not quite following through. Um. Uh, y- you can you can basically see that they have Amazon specifically has big ambitions, has, has big ideals, says things, and then walks it back a little bit, or you know it'll it'll water it down, or it'll just stop talking about something a bit later on, or it'll say something different, and you end up with this oh oh it's fine. They've said this new thing now, or they've said this new thing now. What they used to say, they're not quite talking about. Oh, okay. And and I think that that is problematic. When, when you're, when you're seeing that it becomes problematic. What is needed when you're talking about standardization is some way of saying, okay, one company has done X. Has another company done X? Has another company done X? If we haven't got across companies, if we aren't seeing the same things across companies, then I think we aren't able to com- contrast and compare as to whether one company is doing better or worse than another company. And that is, I I think from my conversations that I've had, I think it's actually quite um, important within those companies as well. I think they want those things. I think they want standards. 
But the problem mm. is that nobody has stepped up to identify those standards yet. Nobody has said, we need all of these things as standards. Um, there are, and, and the biggest issue around that is there are lots and lots of companies who are defining lots and lots of things, but no one has stepped in to say, we're going to, we're going to pull everything together and make it a, a, a coherent platform for everybody. Uh, we have things like the um, GHG protocol. We have TCFD, so Task Force Climate Climate Related Financial Disclosures. We have, and then not really having a consistent um, solution across the the a country or across the globe. And and to put in a sort of concrete example, say a company might take the approach of, okay, we want to go climate neutral or carbon neutral. We'll add up all of the CO2 emissions that are attributable to our electricity generation, and then we'll offset them by planting some trees somewhere. Or another company might say, well, we're going to make sure that actually all of the electricity that we use is sourced from renewables in a sustainable way, or we're going to you know, provide enough electricity to the grid to offset the electricity that we use. You see, there's three or four different standards that you can think of in about five seconds, all of which are completely different in terms of their actual potential impact on the climate. Mm-hmm but all of which may be referred to as a company by saying, okay, well, we're, we're carbon neutral, we're climate neutral now. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it, or, or, you, or you say, are you carbon yeah. zero? How do you do that? And, are you, and does, does, do negative emissions count in that? Or, is it, or, or can you only call yourself carbon neutral? Or who certifies this? And who, how do you check whether someone is, is fraudulent? You know how how do you how do you do all of this? Yeah, we we are in a we are moving into a world where that is going to become more important over the next five to ten years. I suspect we're going to see significantly more regulation around that. I suspect we will see more uh, companies having to deal with customers mm-hmm. asking around all of this and around supply chains as well. So I suspect supply chains. So if you're in a company that works in this space or uh, uh, any company. I suspect we're going to, over the next five years, have these conversations where they go, oh, can you tell us your carbon footprint as a company? And I'll be like, hang on a minute. Yeah, I've and we'll need, we'll need carbon accountants, we'll need carbon you know, auditors, yeah. all this sort of thing that is an infrastructure yeah. that, that is quite huge yeah. if you're serious about doing this um, on a sort of company by company basis that, that doesn't, yeah. you know, of course, there are lots of people doing things like this, but it doesn't exist at the scale that it needs to yet. Yeah, we don't have it. And we, we are going to have to build it. We're going to have to create it. And that is going to need something to underpin it that isn't just, you know, person in his house over, uh, you know, across the street who's come up with an idea and a spreadsheet. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be much greater than that. And it's got to be more uh, codified than that. You know, we have this traditional thing where people ask, oh, well, you know, I'm worried about climate change. What can I do about it? And Sometimes you'll get these answers that say become a vegetarian or don't fly or change your car or vote for party X or whatever it might be. And uh, the the thing that often, at least to me, seems missing is think about what organizations and collectives you're part of and that you can have influence over and use the fact that you are part of that organization to have some leverage over it. You know, whether you are a student at a university uh, you know, I got involved with my university's divestment uh, program to try and divest their uh, endowments from fossil fuels and all this sort of thing. But, you know, everyone is part of these organizations that have a much bigger impact um, on the situation as a whole uh, 
uh, and they can leverage their positions within these organizations to do much more than you will do just as an individual. When it comes to individual lifestyle choices, you know, there's lots of good reasons to make many of the ones that are good for climate change. And, you know, morally, you can talk all day about whether it's important to do that. Um, but but I think that, you know, you're, you're, you're presenting quite a good example here as someone who can use their position within an organization to actually push that as their individual action. Would you like to talk about that sort of individual action and collective action problem and specifically what happened with Amazon? It is really important to look at uh, climate action from a wider point of view than yourself. The more that I have looked at uh, climate as a as a movement, as a um, as a consideration for an individual, you know, going back to data, you know, what is my impact? I will, you know, I might save you know a kilogram here or two of co2 it is literally or i drive less or i get an electric car you know that that is my impact that's why i decided to go and help set up and work with the community energy organization because i was looking at it from the point of view of i can go and help my local community energy organization and i can reduce uh the carbon uh impacts and carbon emissions and the impacts on the local area and so when i was at aws i was sitting there going how can i help this organization to do the same much bigger organization so that was what i did i had conversations in and around uh, which i can't talk about but I, i did have a number of conversations when i left i uh i continued to look at the organization and using the public information I had, I wrote things like an ethics uh, of cloud and data centers white paper. And uh, I tried to make people aware of what was known to me, which was you know, the, the impacts of how data centers work and the impacts of the organization and how to then start to think about organizing and changing your company so you know moving your data centers and your to green electricity or moving cloud to green you know moving to green regions in the cloud because that has a significantly greater impact in terms of you know the emissions you can save than the amount you recycle or going vegetarian you know or so the white paper that i mentioned earlier i wrote with a woman called ann curry who's brilliant um but she and I wrote that and then the FT got to see it and the FT then have taken on that they're going to put all of their um, data centers and uh, cloud stuff into green regions as quickly as possible. So this is the Financial Times and, and it's not like they have small, uh, you know, a small footprint. So that, So, you know, that one impact from that writing, you know, just a bit of thinking and a bit of writing between myself and Anne that, you know, just that one change has made a significantly greater impact than me doing anything on my own. And it may well be greater than your whole lifetime's worth of emissions that are personally attributable to you. Fossil fuel companies regularly pushing, as they have for a while, uh, carbon footprint calculators and pointing to people and saying, you know, you must do X, Y and Z. And if each individual person limits their carbon footprint by a certain amount, it will, uh, you know, solve this problem. Um, and, you know, I think we've all known that while these individual actions you can take are important and many of them will have, you know, additional benefits for you as well. 
Um, it's not the only thing you sh- should consider. And it's also by itself won't make that difference. There was a, a study that's, that's very old and out of date now that MIT did, where they pointed out that simply to uh, be alive in the United States of America, because of the sheer uh, embedded CO2 in actually getting the food to you that you require to survive, um, if you lived a completely you know, uh, hermit-type lifestyle and didn't purchase any luxury goods or anything at all, um, you would still be emitting three or four tons of CO2 per annum um, you know, with, with a global average that's below that. And so there's a limit to how much personal action can actually take you when what you need is this systemic change. And when you're thinking about the systemic change, you have to think about where the organizations yeah. are. And I have think some that, over. That, is, uh, that is absolutely key. And, and part of the problem for me is that, you know, I work in the tech industry. I just added it as part of what I do so that it is, you know, I am now known within my, you know, my bit of tech and cloud as the person that talks about climate change and that that makes a difference we need to get out of the bubble of climate 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 people talking about climate 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 and we need to be understanding that we all have our own bubbles whatever they are mine is tech so i've got to take the climate conversation that i understand which isn't perfect but it's my understanding of it and push it into tech so we've got to understand you know, or into the work environment that I work in or into where, whatever I'm doing at home or at, or at the schools that I go into to kind of support my kids. However I'm doing it, I've got to kind of bring that conversation appropriately into all of those scenarios. And that I think is is how we've got to kind of think about activism. It's not just about, you know, talking about it all the time and making sure that we're doing everything. It's just about changing the way that we approach, you know, this this activism to being about moving from you know over here talk about climate amongst this bubble to outside the bubble most people don't know they really don't they are clueless half the time about all this stuff that we talk about in the climate bubble so let's get out let's talk about it and let's just listen and also try to be as open as possible to explaining some of the stuff that seems simple and I think that's very important because you say, how do we get beyond this bubble? It's a question that we think about a lot. I think, you know, you and I were both active on climate Twitter, uh, and it can feel like we do spend an awful lot of time trying to come up with the correct phrasing to bridge disconnects between different groups of people. You know, I come from this world of academia, climate policy. We all have arguments amongst ourselves about X, Y, and Z. And quite often we don't get enough experience trying to communicate this stuff outside of our niche to people who care about these things, but actually want to know okay, what can I practically do to help? You know, they, they don't want to hear about uh, 10 years to save the planet anymore. They want to know, you know, the, the practical steps that they can take to uh, to help out on these things. And, you know, and I think th- the issue when you don't have people who can do that cross-cutting thing and think, okay, how do I apply this to my domain where I have expertise, you know, which which you're doing in, in tech and cloud computing, is uh, it's in the context of, we, we sort of climate experts, we, we don't know these things, you know, we don't think about these things. And we don't think about um, how they'll be perceived and the impacts that they'll have, because we don't have that same domain experience. So we were talking the other day about, uh, for example, policies that might incentivize businesses to reduce the number of flights that they take. And the idea is, well, if you put an extra tax on each flight, that probably won't do anything. Um, but if you put a scaling tax so that, you know, a, a business can only take a certain number of flights, eventually, that would actually reduce what they're doing. And this just isn't the sort of insight that I that I worry many people in policy actually have. Um, so, so in that vein, I mean, you've talked about it a bit already, but 
Do you think there are ways that we should try and talk about climate beyond the bubble? And when you're talking about communication strategies, when you're trying to talk to people in the tech industry, uh, what are those conversations like? What concerns do they bring to you? And how do you try and get them? Uh, communications forward? within the tech industry is, is difficult. Half the time, half the time, they just basically want to turn around and say, oh, it's fine. Fusion power will come along um, and fix everything, which is <laughs> yeah. ludicrous because having been talking about physics for 30 years nearly, you just want to turn around what we were talking about fusion power 30 years ago. So that's not going to happen. Um, yeah, I, should, I should interject here and say that our show has actually had uh, a 25 episode <laughs> history of fusion. Um, so lots of people listening to this will be fusion enthusiasts. But I think one of the main conclusions that you come to at the end of that show is surely to say that if you're betting on this thing coming along and being the thing that replaces the energy system, uh, fossil fuels from the energy system in the next 30 years, when it doesn't work yet, um, yeah. and we have technology that does work, um, it, you know, yeah. It, it's just, yeah. yeah, but it's this techno optimism that you, that you have to deal with. And this idea that yes. there will be a silver bullet solution that comes along that doesn't require you to have serious thinking about every yeah. system that uses energy, you know, which unfortunately for us turns out to be most of the yeah. systems. And that, I, and that uh, I, I call it techno utopianism. And, that, and that's because, you know, mm-hmm. in the tech world, effectively, you can just go along and build something in this in this virtual space to solve whatever technical problem that you have. You know, we have AI, machine learning, we have all of these other things. And so you end up with this belief and it's just, it's an inherent belief that you could just build something and it will work and it will solve that. Um, and we, we in the tech world don't often come up against problems like climate, which are intractable, policy-based, um, you know, people-based, political where you're basically having to you know feet on the ground get you know get out and actually have conversations that are difficult you know really make people understand your position all of those kinds of things it's very very different slow much much slower legal questions that you have to resolve you know all of those kinds of things you, you just want to kind of scream at them that this is not this is not your let's let's write a bit of code and solve it which is essentially what most people do if you if you look at an awful lot of what people think of a lot of them try and build startups when they go oh i'm going to build something to save the world which is how a lot of them think a lot of them will build carbon you know carbon footprint calculators or offset uh, offset solutions for businesses and you just you just want to sit there and quietly scream into the void um and you you what you want them to do is to come and talk to some people to understand what the problems actually are before they go off and try and build the solution that they think is needed and that's where we, that's where the disconnect happens within the tech world certainly it's interesting. I have a sort of anecdote on that point, which is I went to uh, the International Conference on Machine Learning a couple of years ago. Um, and one of the things that they had there was a workshop on climate change, which is what I was there for. And one of the solutions that one of these big AI uh, boffins had come up with was a sort of, it used generative adversarial networks to produce uh, pictures of what people um, what people's houses and what cities and so on would look like if they were flooded under six feet of sea level rise or whatever it was. 
And um, this is because in in the the tech guy's head who'd come up with this, you know, the idea is, well, what's the problem with climate change? Not enough people are worried about it. You know, I need to change their political point of view by showing them these pictures of the town being flooded and so on. And you thought, well, it's all it's all great and it's a brilliant project and everything, but it's sort of it's it's looking for this Deus Ex Machina and this Deus Ex Tech Machina, and you wonder whether that same guy had also thought, okay, what's the carbon footprint of you know the my own personal work, um, my group, my research group, and the you know huge amount of CPUs and GPUs that we're using through and our flights to these conferences and so on. You know, had any of this been considered? And you think probably not. Probably not, because they're thinking, well, we'll just build something and yeah. that will resolve this problem. And uh, yeah, it's like a it's like a solutionism that yeah. is, uh, and, and, is quite shallow. And that's, that's where most tech people sit. And it and it it, it is intensely frustrating uh, for someone who's sat there and, and been more at the sharp end of all of this. And, and and I've kind of I've kind of stopped talking to a lot of people about what startup they're going to build, because I could pretty much guess. Um, and, and you know, when you've done some research into the space, basically you find out most of the things you need to build are policy based, uh, and you you need to build something where you're solving the um, the technical problems around legal issues, or technical problems around regulation, or the technical problems around you know communication. Or something like that. It's 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 very different to the technical problems around you know, which bit's going to get flooded, or uh, where should we put all the solar panels on all of the roofs in a city, which is one I've seen. You know that it, it, it's it's beautiful and very pretty and uh, very helpful, but it's like that's just not going to fly because no nobody's going to put the solar panels on unless someone else pays for them, and then the city says that that's a reasonable thing to do, and then someone's going to connect them all to the grid, and who's going to pay for that? Uh, you know, you sit there and you go, that's lovely, but that's just never going to happen. So why? And all of that. Yes, you've, you've made a wonderful it's data set. A, it's, yeah. it's, you, 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 you. you quietly despair of the tech industry at that point and you go you kind of want the climate industry the climate world to kind of start shoving ideas the right ideas towards the tech industry saying can you please build this if you could build this we would be a lot happier and stop building all of these other things and i think that's that's where we end up um but most of the tech world isn't aware of that yet and i've tried i've tried but it's like i i've kind of stopped trying to tell there's a concern that this lack of, of knowledge can also translate to a lack of understanding about how climate change is going to pose risks to various different businesses. Not just necessarily, you know, not knowing how your business is exposed in a financial sense, whether it's to a carbon bubble or to an industry that will be damaged by climate change. But you, you've spoken about, for example, uh, businesses that are now trying to understand the impact that extreme weather events are likely to have on, on their premises and property and so on. And uh, you've been doing research into this area. W- would you like to talk about that? Yeah, so I think it's 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 relatively obvious that you know climate change is changing the weather, so we're going to have major weather events. So you know companies need to think about their buildings, or you know sea level is going to rise, so companies need to relocate certain buildings away from certain places. That that's obvious, I think, to a lot of people in terms of risk. But I think what people don't see are the other types of risks. So you're looking at things like supply chain risks. So 
let's kind of take a little bit. Let's let's talk a little bit about maybe fuel. So fuel is going to have to change over the next few years. You know, we're going to have to go carbon neutral over, you know, or carbon net zero over the next 30 years. So fuel is going to become probably more expensive. This is this is a guess, but I'm assuming legislation is going to make certain fuels worse. So I suspect we're not going to be able to have certain things flown from China all of the time. So I suspect we're going to have shortened supply chains, which means we're going to have manufacturing in different places. We're probably going to start moving supply chains and manufacturing much closer to home. So all of a sudden, companies that are used to basically manufacturing elsewhere for much, much cheaper are going to have to start thinking about bringing things back. So the risks are not just about all of this, you know, the climate side of things. They're actually much wider and much deeper to an awful lot of companies. And, and I think when you think about how climate affects everything, if you're not thinking about those kinds of things now, a lot of companies are going to get caught out. And they're going to get caught out probably in the next five years. Because what's going to happen in places like the EU, UK, China, I think probably and Japan is a, a, probably the main areas and possibly the US, certainly Canada as well. There's going to start to be legislation that starts to cement this in place and starts to ramp up the changes that are going to need to come along. So, you know, your fuel is going to change. You're probably going to start going towards more, you know, electricity based, you know, transport around countries, you're going to, you know, probably use less shipping, you're going to be, all of these things are going to start changing and changing the way you have to think about your business. And so at the C level, you're going to be, you know, the, the, the C-suite, your your chief executives, your, C, your chief financial officer, all of those kinds of things, your operations officer, they're going to have to start putting in strategies in place now to start thinking about supply chains, but also then distribution. Can you still be a globalized company? Company. can you do all, are you going to have to think about maybe automating your warehouse automating your um uh your production maybe putting uh, you know 3d printing in various different parts of the world you know how how are you going to do what's your what's your future so i think when you when you look at um the future of business and the future of uh climate you are you are thinking very much most people think about risks in very simplistic terms when you think about business and when you think about the changes that are going to be coming down the line there are significant risks and one of the biggest problems at the moment in terms of assessing that risk is that there are not good uh capital risk models so actually when you look at um uh, when you look at the capital market, so where where companies get their money from effectively when they're borrowing large scale you know multi you know tens of millions hundreds of millions uh you know borrowing money to go and build new things you know go and do cool new stuff there isn't a good model yet for the companies lending them the money the banks to actually assess whether or not they've got good climate risk plans in place so we are we are in the in the realms of just beginning to set this all up and that i think is where the next few years is going to start to see some really interesting movement. Uh, so here in the UK, just to set this in context, we recently had this 10-point green plan announced. And one of the things that's been announced as, as part of that ancillary to that is this idea of climate-related financial disclosure on the part of, of companies and investors and so on. And uh, defining the scope of that, which I think is what we're talking about here, 
is very difficult when you consider just how much of the economy is going to have to be changed to to get to net zero and and the the knock-on consequences that that has on things like supply chains as you're talking about and and uh, you know we we are gonna have to all think about this as you know much as they say the uk government has said you know it's going to only be bigger businesses and publicly uh, listed businesses uh, it, it is going to be all of us and that is going to have a knock-on effect to the eu because the biggest trading partner whether or not you know all of the other things happening around it you know it's going to have a knock-on effect it's going to have a knock-on effect a wider to the wider world so i think you know much as we we don't see the effects yet we are going to start to see effects at some point in the not too distant future Uh, you know logistics companies i think are probably going to get hammered by this if they don't start to think about it pretty soon so companies that transport anything in and around you know company uh, countries or across borders i think uh, uh, we could we could see some really interesting problems uh, arising over the next few years and it's a sector that's had some interesting problems to deal with mm-hmm. recently as well um I, I know that there are going to be plenty of people working in in tech or adjacent industries who are listening to this and many of them if they're listening to me will also be very concerned about climate change as well so i just thought we could round off by maybe asking what, what advice would you give to someone listening to this who is working in one of these industries if they want to to make a practical difference? What do you think they should do? So uh, practically, very simple. Just start to read up around all of this. Find some, uh, some way of being an activist within your organisation. Don't try and uh, change everything, but start to have the conversations. One of the uh, recommendations I make in the research is start to have the conversations with your head of sustainability, whoever that is, and start to offer your support. If you're within the tech space, I think they are going to find that to be very positive, actually, because I think we're going to be moving into a a world where the collaboration between data and sustainability is going to become significantly greater. So going to someone who is heading up sustainability and saying, how are we going to be developing our data platforms over the next few years can I help with that kind of effort I think is going to be an interesting conversation to have they may not have even thought about it it could be the kind of thing that would be particularly useful I think that's an interesting space to go into um, and that you know changing the organization often what I've seen is um, it takes one or two motivated individuals in an organization to start promoting or suggesting ideas about how an organization can change so there's that as well very you know big globalized organizations one or two people can actually make a significant change so i think those kinds of things make a big difference as well um apart from that get involved in something locally look at whether or not you know community energy is something you want to do um you know there are numerous community energy organizations out there who will happily happily give you half an hour on the phone and tell you about what they've done how they've done it and and give you some advice very happy to loads of them out there give them a call get in touch um it's it's an enjoyable thing to do it's hard work but you know it's very rewarding as well and and those those kinds of things are what i would suggest Mm. and i think people will realize that actually when you start to do some of this stuff you find it a far more optimistic experience than just sort of dreading the future or or being concerned about it or feeling powerless about it. Because actually through leveraging other people's interests, through leveraging the organizations that you're in and the position that you're in, you you may not know it, but you have more power than you think. 
And certainly, you know, I mean, we saw this uh, article that was sort of roundly mocked recently where it was saying send fewer emails to help <laughs> with the climate change crisis. And um, I think what we're really coming away with here is send more emails, <laughs> <laughs> but just change change what yeah. they're about. Um, you know, talk to people and figure out what's going on, you know, in the, the systems that you're part of and, and think about how you can change them for the yeah. better. Um, Paul, I just want to say, is there anywhere that people can go to find your work and, and find out more about your research and, and things that you would like to uh, plug and tell people who are interested um, to find out? So uh, probably the best thing is to find me on Twitter. So I'm at Paul D. Johnston on Twitter. Uh, I am uh, Paul Johnston uh, on LinkedIn as well. J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Um, just just search for me. Uh, I've my company that uh is the community energy company is wolverton community energy hopefully you can find it from that information it's quite small there's only one of me working there so no problem okay well paul thank you very much for your time today and coming on the show and uh, talking to us about climate change business and the tech industry we really appreciate it i hope you enjoyed this episode of physical attraction and thanks to paul for agreeing to be interviewed and being so generous with his time you can find him on twitter at paul d johnston that's John, S-T-O-N, and you can read his Medium articles at the same handle. Remember, you can support us on Patreon via the PayPal link, and you can head over to physicspodcast.com to contact the show with any comments, questions, concerns, or to find out more about our fast-ballooning back catalogue. Until next time, then, please do take care.